Now let me invite you to open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 24. Jeremiah 24. If you're new to the faith, I invite you to open your Bible right to the middle or go to your uh, go to your device to the middle of all the books. And you'll find like the Psalms and then turn right. That's where you'll find Jeremiah. It's one of the larger prophetic books. Uh, we're in Jeremiah 24. And the context is this. Uh, we are uh, in a series this summer talking about the, the issue of belonging, of connecting in relationships to one another, and uh, the challenge that that is in our time. And today we're going to find a people right in the middle of a major challenge of connecting. They've just been kicked out of the land uh, because of their sin and idolatry. And God, in the midst of that, gives them this extraordinary promise uh, it, it, while they are struggling living in another land. Listen to the word of the Lord from Jeremiah 24. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Jerusalem, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, together with the officials of Judah, the craftsmen and the metal workers, at, uh, and had brought them to Babylon, the Lord showed me this vision. Behold, two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs, but the other basket had very bad figs, so bad that they could not be eaten. And the Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? I said, figs. The good figs, very good, and the bad figs, very bad, so bad they cannot be eaten. Then the word of the Lord came to me, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good and will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God." For they shall return to me with their whole heart. But thus says the Lord, Like the bad figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten, so will I treat Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his officials, the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in this land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a reproach, a byword, a taunt, and a curse in all the places where I shall drive them. And I will send sword, famine, and pestilence upon them until they shall be utterly destroyed from the land that I gave to them and their fathers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I've been a member officially, I think, for about 15 minutes. <laughs> And it's now time to preach, um, but would you please join me uh, going to the Lord to ask for his help on this time. Holy Spirit, would you help me preach your word truthfully, clearfully, clearly, boldly, and would you have it bless my heart and bless your people. In Christ's name, amen. I just want to go home. Many of us have said those words uh, from the heart in different situations plenty of times in our life. I just want to go home. 
I was a freshman in college when I was invited to a camping trip on Masonboro Island. Um, if you don't know, Masonboro is off the coast of Wilmington, off of the intercoastal waters, and there's nothing built on the island, but a lot of people will take boats out there and camp for the night, and it sounded like a lot of fun, so I joined and I went. Ten or so college students on an island, a recipe for success, right? <laughs> Um, but it was, a, it was a good time. I met a lot of my best friends, who I hope will be best friends for life on that trip. I, uh, we just uh, told each other stories. We had a campfire, made s'mores. It was a, it was a really good time, and we went to bed thinking that we're just going to wake up, have some breakfast, and make our way back home. Easy breezy, nothing wrong with it. But then it started sprinkling on us. It started drizzling a little bit of rain. And at first, it was nothing big. It was just a little uncomfortable. But before we knew it, the sky dumped on us. It absolutely started pouring rain, and it was pitch black. Remember, there's no electricity, nothing, no lights on the island. Our, our fire is, of course, put out. So we try to gather everything we can and make our way back to the boat. And by this point, it was probably 1 or 2 a.m. in the morning. And right before we think we're about to leave, we're back on the boat, and everything's covered in, in sand and wet, which just feels great, right? Wet and sandy. And our guy that's in charge of driving the boat can't find his contact lenses. And I'm thinking, oh. by this point, I'm just like, I just want to go home. And now I don't think I'm ever going to get home, at least not anytime soon. So we're looking, and it, the rain has died down a little bit by this point, but we're looking for his contact lenses, and he can't find it until providentially, a girl that was with us asked, wait, what prescription do you have? And somehow he knew it by heart. I don't know mine by heart, but he knew it. And she had the same exact prescription for her regular glasses. So she lended him his glasses and we got on the boat. The rain started dying down. We made our way back home. It was about 5 a.m. once we got back to our cars. So what a night. I remember feeling the dry land and just thinking, praise the Lord, I'm home. And in that story, I felt lost and helpless for maybe about three hours. But a lot of us have felt that way for a much longer time. A lot of us have felt lost and helpless for a much longer time. In a sense, I was in exile in this story because I was away from home. I was craving the security of home, but it was out of my power to get me there. I had to have someone else with a boat, and some glasses, and a know-how to drive to actually get me home. Well, in our text, in Jeremiah 24, God is speaking to exiles in around 600 BC, but he's also speaking to you today, to you that feel lost, lonely, confused. In, in scripture, we see that all of us, in a spiritual way, were born exiles, away from our true home, with God in paradise. My purpose for today's message is that you would know this, that God calls the lost to himself and to each other. And in response to that, I hope you seek God in worship, seek the church in community, and seek the lost as God sought you. So we'll see that from our text. So please direct your attention back to Jeremiah 24. And... We'll try to get a feeling for the context here. Dean did a good job of, of setting it for us. Um, it's around 600 BC, and most of Judah has fallen away from God. Most of Judah has been exiled to Babylon. 
They're stripped from their home and are a prisoner of war, driven off to a foreign land. But what got them there? So what had gone wrong in Judah? There was corrupt leadership that led to the downfall of the entire nation. There were corrupt kings who abused the poor and took advantage of them. Corrupt priests, the ones in charge of worship, led the nation to worship idols and false gods. One of those idols, just so you know how bad it had gotten, one of them was Molech, who is worshipped through child sacrifice. Judah was slaughtering their own children because they thought it would bless them. But the most corrupt leaders were possibly the false prophets because they were justifying everything that was going on. They were slaughtering children. They were worshiping false gods. They were abusing the poor. And these false prophets would say, God is happy with you. Don't turn around. Do not repent. You don't need to change anything. Keep living the way you are. And God will continue to bless you. Preachers who twist their view of God to allow whatever the people want. Can you imagine that? Most of you lament with me knowing it's, we don't have to look too hard to find false prophets. But thankfully, there were a few true prophets. One of them was Jeremiah. And at this point in our text, he's been preaching the same message for 23 years. It can all be summed up in one word, repent. Repent just means turn around. You've been going the wrong way. Turn back to God. God is here to welcome you when you turn back. But in 23 years at this point, little to no one has turned the Jews, the special chosen people of God who God refers to as his bride have cheated on him repeatedly and have refused to return. So now God is judging his people. He's using Judah's most powerful enemy, Babylon, and their king, Nebuchadnezzar, to come into Jerusalem, kill thousands, take thousands, and export them back to Babylon as exiles. So in a sense, this chapter 24, as we dive into it, summarizes the entire purpose of the whole book of Jeremiah. It has two purposes. One is to comfort those in exile. God is seeking to comfort those in exile. But two, he's also warning the hardened. He's warning those that refuse to listen to him, that refuse to repent. So we take that message to today. Likewise, God is seeking to comfort those here who feel lost and who know their need of him. But he's also warning the hardened here. He's warning those that refuse to listen, that have become stubborn and refuse to repent because of false security. And God displays this with a vision. So let's try to understand this vision of the figs that he gives us. So God shows Jeremiah two baskets of figs, one good, one bad. The good figs, he will treat well, and the bad figs, he will punish, he will treat poorly. Now, before I go further, I want to address a possible misunderstanding that we might have if we read this too quickly. We might think good figs equals good people, and bad figs equals bad people. So God looks down on his people, the good ones I will treat well, and the bad ones I will punish. But if that's our conclusion to this text, we've missed the whole point. And possibly the whole point of all of scripture. We've probably missed the point of the whole reason why Jesus came. This vision is more about a future reality than a present status. 
What do I mean by this? The good figs are also bad people. The good figs are guilty of the same crimes that we just talked about. And if we look in verse five, God references the exiles whom are exiles because God sent them there. The good figs are bad people whom God will save. The bad figs are bad people who harden their hearts, who refuse to listen and do not repent. So the good figs are bad people, but look at verse five. God says, I will regard them as good. Verse six, I will set my eyes on them for good. This verse is in the future tense. He's saying, I will look at bad people and see them as if they are good. In the Old Testament, when God was judging people, he would often say, I'll hide my face from them. I will not look on them. That meant that God was removing his favor from people. But here God is saying the opposite. He's saying, I will set my eyes on them for good. Meaning, I will be kind and loving to the exile. I will give them my favor. The undeserved favor of God on sinners. Do you know what we call that in the Christian life? Grace. We were singing about that all morning. The amazing grace of God is the undeserved favor, the undeserved love and kindness of him on sinners. The exiles were in a dark spot. They knew their need. They knew they needed grace. But let's turn our attention to the bad figs for just a moment. They didn't know their need, most likely because of false security. As we look down in verse eight, some fled to Egypt during the first exile, thinking they could escape the judgment of God, which maybe they did temporarily, but God is reminding them it's impossible to escape his judgment. But I want to focus on the ones that are still in Jerusalem. You look in verse 8, it says, the remnant that are still in this land. Now, usually in the Old Testament, when you see God talk about a remnant, it means these are the people that are still faithful to me. But in this context, the remnant are actually, we see, the bad figs. They're the ones who are still physically left in Judah. But how are they hardened? What's false security for them? You see, being in Judah, the fact that they weren't exiled was a security blanket for the bad figs. They saw the bad people as the ones that were out there exiled and they were left in Jerusalem. They were some of the few people left. They thought, okay, God is happy with us. That was their security blanket. And you know what I mean by security blanket, like Linus from Charlie Brown. You know, he, all, he was always the most calm guy in the series, but it's because he always had his blanket. I actually did a little bit of digging on YouTube and there's a not as popular episode where Linus loses his blanket and because of that, he just has all these withdrawal symptoms and he's a wreck. So Judah, still being in Judah, was a security blanket for the bad figs. They thought life was good. They thought God was happy with them. What's your security blanket? Ballantine is full of security blankets. This area is known for its affluence and its excellence. We get into great schools. We have great jobs. We have high expectations, and oftentimes we might even meet those expectations. But what is that security blanket for you? What is that comfort for you that you think, as long as I have, life is pretty good, and it blinds you of your need for grace? Is it that cushion in your bank account that helps you feel really comfortable? 
Is it the excellence of your child in, in academics or athletics or some other club and, and you're kind of living your fulfilled life through them in a way? Security blankets blind us of our need for grace. So don't, don't be like the bad figs. Don't mistake your comfort for God's approval. Don't mistake your comfort for salvation. Have you repented? That is the message that Jeremiah is getting across to his people. Just like how the land of Judah or Egypt would not save the bad figs from God's judgment, your security blanket will not save you. In verses 9 and 10, we see that judgment is still coming. Babylon is coming back to Jerusalem and to Egypt, and God will punish them both. This earthly punishment eventually ended, but his spiritual punishment, as we know from Scripture, lasts forever. So I plead with you, don't mistake your comfort for God's approval. It could be a security blanket. Seek him and repent. But if you do feel that need for grace, if you do feel that need for God to bring you back because you're exiled, we have good news and that's where we will focus for the rest of this sermon God seeks to comfort the exile in this text and he comforts you who feel lost today because, and this is the main point of everything we're talking about today, God calls the lost to himself. God calls the lost to himself. Dean noted this a few weeks ago in his sermon uh, in Exodus. When we look at what God is saying to the good figs here, look, let's count how many times God says, I will, in these first few verses. Verse five, I will regard as good the exiles from Judah. Verse six, I will set my eyes on them for good. I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. And finally, verse seven, I will give them a heart and I will be their God. That is seven of them. That is a lot. (laughs) That is God showing how he's starting and finishing the entire process of salvation for his people. In verse six, God says he will bring them back to the promised land, but he does not stop there. In verse seven, he says, I will give them a heart. In verse seven, we see not only an outward return, but an inward change. Not only an outward return, but an inward change. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord. What does this mean? What does it mean that God's gonna give them a heart? In Western culture, when we say heart, we're mostly talking about feelings and emotion. But in ancient Hebrew culture, it often meant much more than that. The heart describes the inner core of a person that directs the will and prompts action. The heart is what you choose from. The heart is what you choose from. Now, how we described the people earlier it shouldn't, it shouldn't surprise you that when Jeremiah described the heart, he described it as rebellious, stubborn, and evil. The human heart. Chapter 17, verse nine. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. No one can understand the human heart. And this is something that our age desperately needs to hear. Follow your heart is seen as good advice. We think that feeling defines truth. 
Even in the church, we think that how we feel defines what God is, is telling us, sometimes even if it goes against his word. But the heart is a liar. Hip-hop artist Jackie Hill Perry says it this way, our affections are infected. I think that's a good way to remember it. Our affections are infected. The heart is the will. We all have wills and we all make choices. But if we want to follow God, if we want to choose God, it is impossible without a new will. It is impossible without a new heart. A wicked heart cannot choose a good God. And that is the predicament that we're in. God must give you a new heart first. And that is exactly what he does. About a month ago, a small bump on my face started getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I thought, oh boy, perfect timing because I get married in two months at the time. Um, So I went to the dermatologist and we've been treating it over the course of about a month. Finally, they stuck a knife in this bad boy and drained it down. So it's a lot smaller now. And even if this recedes all the way back to its original form, what you don't see is what's beneath the skin. Everybody can see a big, ugly bump or hopefully now a not as big, not as ugly bump. But what you don't see is what's called the systal wall. It's, it's beneath the skin. And even if this reduces all the way down, if I don't have plastic surgery and get it fully removed, it could flare back up at any time. True healing happens beneath the surface. We need a God who can get beneath the surface down to our very hearts and give us a new heart to love him and follow him and repent. And that is exactly what, we, what he does. The outcome of this new heart is at the end of verse seven. They shall return to me with their whole heart. The main point of this promise is not just a physical return to their physical home, Judah, but a return to God, their spiritual home. We also see in verse seven, this phrase that's been popping up a lot in this Belong series, They shall be my people, and I will be their God. Do you know what that is? That phrase, they shall be my people, and I will be their God. That is covenant language. Every time you see God use that phrase, especially throughout the Old Testament as it pops up, that is covenant language. A covenant is when God binds himself to a group of people on his own terms. He binds them to himself, and he promises to be faithful to them, And he double swears on that promise by his own name. And God cannot lie. So you know when God binds himself in covenant with you, he is remaining faithful to you. So this is covenant language. To belong to God is to be in covenant with God. To belong to God, and this is huge because we're talking about this all summer. To belong to God is to be in covenant with God. We saw this In Exodus, when Dean preached chapter six, verse seven, he says, I will take you to be a people and I will be your God. That is God initiating that covenant with Israel. Now in Jeremiah, we see God bringing up that covenant again, saying, I have always been your redeemer and I will redeem you again. But the wonderful thing with Jeremiah is God's not only referring back to the old covenant, he's also pointing forward to the new covenant. So I invite you to take your Bibles and flip just a few pages forward with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. And we'll be in verses 31 through 34. This is the most explicit 
passage on the new covenant that we get in Jeremiah, but this is the covenant that he's pointing forward to. Verse 31, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Let's just pause for a moment and ask, how is that possible? In light of the sins that we described at the beginning of the sermon, how can God forgive those sins and still be good and still be holy? How can God forgive you and still be good? The answer we find clear as day in Luke chapter 22 verse 20 over 600 years later Christ sits with his disciples and he holds out the cup saying this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood the new covenant in my blood that is what Jeremiah is pointing to your sin requires bloodshed you deserve I deserve our own blood, but Christ in his grace shed his own blood for my sin and your sin so that exiles like you and me can come home to God. That is the glory of the new covenant. But in the new covenant, God does not only call the lost to himself, he also calls them to each other. He also calls the lost to to each other. And this is where we see a main connection with our belong series. Just it's not too hard to find. Verse 7, they shall be my people, not person. I didn't have to study that hard <laughs> to find that. They shall be my people. That is plural. Jesus did not die a bunch of individual deaths for a bunch of individual people. He died once for his church. To belong to God is to be in covenant with God and to, be, and to belong to each other is to be in covenant with each other. We also saw this last week in Ruth. The covenant language popped up again in chapter 116. Remember when Ruth uh, promised to Naomi that she would follow her and she said, uh, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. And your God will be my God and your people, my people. She is committing herself to the one true God and the one true God's people. We saw a beautiful example of that in membership this morning. Therefore, Christianity is not a solo project. We should seek out others in the church for community. God binds us to himself and to each other in his covenant. Like we've been saying, you've heard it multiple times today, I belong to you. You belong to me. Y'all belong to each other. We belong to each other. I'm getting married soon and that is a covenant between us. And not only will Elena and I be bound together, we will also be bound to God. 
And then we also know from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, that it's actually a picture of Christ binding himself to the whole church in covenant. Covenant binds us to God and to one another. So God, and we'll apply this more later, God calls the lost to himself and to each other. This wonderful truth leads us to three main applications. First is this, seek God and worship. Seek God and worship. As we saw with the new heart, if you are a Christian today, it is because God was gracious to you. He provided the way of salvation. You were exiled because of your sin, but he brought you back in his own timing and his own power. He gave you a new heart. He made it happen. He gets all the credit. He did not only provide a way for you to come home, he brought you home, and as we sang today, he's gonna keep you home. That is what God has promised to do. And even if you don't remember a time that you weren't a Christian, maybe you grew up a Christian similar to myself. Even if you grew up a Christian, you don't necessarily remember a time that you weren't, God still had to do something inside of you at some point. There was a moment when God gave you a new heart. Your testimony, no matter how boring you think it may be, in God's eyes is a radical rescue mission. And that is something we should praise God for now. Calvin once said, a true knowledge of God is never imaginary. A true knowledge of God is never imaginary. Does your faith ever feel imaginary? Does it ever feel fuzzy, unimpactful? You come here to church, you worship, you even feel emotionally elevated when you worship, but when you go home and real life happens, real life stuff happens to you, it just seems to not apply anymore. God promises a new heart and and we can continue to seek him and he continues to transform our hearts. Have you ever prayed this prayer? Lord, I believe that you love me, but help me love you. Continue to give me a heart for you. Ask him to woo you, to reveal himself to you. That is what he's promising with these new hearts. And it would be wise for us to seek him, to say, God, remember what you promised Continue to transform my heart. If you're here today and you're not a Christian or you've been questioning it for quite some time, you probably have a lot of questions and those questions do have answers. But even the answer to every question is not enough to save you. We see that in our text. What you really need is a new heart and that is something only God can give. The staff, the interns, the leaders at the church were here to help you and to talk with you. The members are here to talk with you and help you. But ultimately, there has to come a point where you repent and you cry out to God for that new heart. Ask him to help you believe. He is able and he is willing to do that. Because God calls the lost to himself. And he calls us to each other in community. This is our second application. Seek the church for community. Jesus poured the same blood for you as he did for me. You have the same Holy Spirit in you that I have. The same new heart. And in this summer, we've been talking about a lot of ways to live that out. In the bulletin, there are tons of ways that we can live that out as a body together in South Charlotte Presbyterian Church. And community is a very necessary and life-giving and can be a very joyful thing in the church. But I think something that our text points to is when community 
can be difficult and emotionally draining, especially when we're called to suffer together. Uh, the, the Judeans were in exile together for 70 years and they had to do that together. They suffered together. Likewise, in our short life here at South Charlotte Prez, we've had people in very lost and, and, and hard and desperate situations. We've had illness and other tragedies, other issues and and the testimony of the church so far from what I've experienced is that we've, we've bound together and we've suffered through this together and that's a good testimony because life is dark, exile is dark and there's times where we will just sit and say, I just want to go home and it helps when someone is with you saying, me too and we will go home. Exile is dark, but on the horizon is the light of God's promises. Suffering together builds hope, and it reminds us that home in heaven will eventually come. And we do have a sort of home here now in the church. Lastly, seek out the lost as God sought you. Seek out the lost as God sought you. God sought out the exile. Jesus said, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. He also said, as the father has sent me, I am now sending you to his disciples. And his disciples who wrote scripture are now saying that to us. Likewise, um, or excuse me, in our passage, God talks about saving people in his own power. But guess how he did it? He did it through the preaching of prophets like Jeremiah. God used human agents for his saving work. Likewise, God today seeks people through the church. When you seek out someone that does not know Jesus, that is possibly Jesus seeking that person through you. God works through his people. And it is very unfortunate that those with a high view of God's sovereignty, like we see in our text that salvation is all of God, he gives you the new heart. It's unfortunate that those with a high view of God's sovereignty are accused of neglecting evangelism. And sometimes they do. Sometimes we do have such a high view, we misapply it and neglect evangelism. But I quote, or I paraphrase J.I. Packer here, answering the question, if God is in control of everything, why do we need to evangelize? I paraphrase J.I. Packer saying, God's sovereignty is our only hope in evangelism. If God did not change hearts, all of the work that we do is in vain and we have absolutely no hope and we rely too much on ourselves and are afraid that we might mess something up. Here in Ballantyne, as Dean talked about the life, universe, and anything, meetings, we are confronted with all sorts of different worldviews and belief systems, different ways of thinking, and when we encounter them, we, we, we love them, but it can be intimidating in the sense of like, okay, what do I say? What do I do? Did I mess something up? You say something that doesn't land well. Oh, did I just ruin their chance of ever coming to Jesus? Take heart, keep seeking the lost. Let that give you confidence that God is ultimately in control. 
God will use his church. He will use his people and he does desire to use you. We were all once spiritual exiles, but God calls the lost to himself. He also calls us to each other. In response, we should seek God in worship, seek the church in community, and seek the lost as God sought us. Let's pray together. God, you have called us to yourself. And so often we lose grip of the magnitude of what that really means. Even as preaching, I don't think I get a sense of, of, of how huge that really is. You are so powerful and so loving. And I pray that every Christian here today would just rejoice abundantly because of the saving work that you have done. I pray that you would also remind us that we are bound to one another, even called to suffer with one another. So I pray that those here today that are lost, that are lonely, that they would seek you, but they would also feel confident to seek your church and that you would give us, your people, the wisdom to surround them and to be with them in this temporary exile because you will ultimately bring us home. You have promised it. You have covenanted it. In Christ's name, amen.